Welcome to Soundpost, a podcast dedicated to exploring the meaning of orchestral music in today's world through the lives of its leading artists. I'm Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I'm Raul Gomez. And today we are with the one and only Leon Baisi. You played professionally with orchestras for 22 years. You played in San Francisco, you played in Rochester, you played in Boston. Does it feel like time has flown by? Yes, it's a steady accelerando of life. And then you switch to teaching full-time. So I'm curious about that transition in your life and that decision-making that led to, to doing just that, which of course has led to such an amazing teaching career and you've taught so many incredible flutists playing in orchestras all over the world. I was in my mid-40s when I made that decision and I had worked with extraordinary conductors. I was thinking about all of the wonderful musicians with whom I had had the privilege to work during my, my years in, well, of course, David Zinman in the Rochester Philharmonic, Edo DeVart in San Francisco, and because I'm of Dutch background, there was an instant recognition of a, a shared background uh, with Edo. And starting with my years in San Francisco, the kinds of guests whom we had. I remember Wolfgang Savalisch, for example, uh, being an extremely important guest. And then in Boston, uh, Seiji Ozawa having, of course, a huge influence on all of us, but then having my countryman Bernard Heitink as, as a guest conductor and recording with him, uh, Simon Rattle, Marek Janowski, Klaus Tenstedt. For me, that experience was so extraordinary in terms of, of just taking in and learning. And when it came time to make a decision in my own mind about teaching, I felt that I could share something very, very special because of the exposure I had had to, to great musicians. And then I decided it was time to, to give back, to share, to really hopefully prepare others who were interested in becoming the next generation of orchestral players. I want to dive right into a story, Leon, that you have told me that happened in Boston and I don't think Carlos has heard this story. I had been in New England for several days, giving a recital at the Hart School in Hartford, Connecticut, and was visiting in Boston, and had attended a rehearsal of the orchestra in preparation for their evening concert with Ozawa conducting and Leon Fleischer as soloist. So I was out in the audience with a friend, and suddenly there is a tap on my shoulder during the first piece, which was a work for strings that Ozawa was conducting. And the usher said, come with me. So I left the hall and I saw Ozawa's assistant and she said, our piccolo player called in. She was struck with a stomach flu at 7.25 before leaving for the concert. No one in the city of Boston will come in and sight read Sorcerer's Apprentice and Daphnis and Chloe. Will you please come? And we've sent for a piccolo. It's at the hotel of the visiting guest principal. 
just down the street. So I said, okay, I will do this if you will give me a place where I can practice for 40 minutes without anybody seeing me. And then I asked Ozawa's assistant what size she was wearing. We were the same size. We switched clothes. I walked out on the stage and all my friends said, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. I was just sitting out there about 45 minutes ago. And fortunately, I had practiced all the right passages. It went well. And afterwards, during the bows, Seiji saved the last bow for me. And the whole orchestra started screaming. And the audience, I'm sure, was thinking, what did the piccolo player do? And a week or two later, I received a check in the mail that was triple scale. <laughs> Leon, now, I'm going to share with you something that happened, actually, I believe, uh, either last year or two years ago with a very uh, esteemed friend and colleague of yours, uh, Patty Adams, who, whom you know. Very well. Uh, and she is... Uh, like like you, a, a very, very highly accomplished flutist, piccolo player. So um, we have a concert in New Orleans that Raul knows. It's, it's called the Historic New Orleans Collection. And it's one yearly concert that you play a kind of uh, historically connected program, which means about 60 minutes of works that can kind of go all over the place. It's put together by a fabulous historian by the name of Alfred Lemon, who is one of these like encyclopedic knowledge kind of person. Uh, and, you know, we always go through a planning phase where he, he proposes the works and then I, I, you know, bringing down to orchestral reality, which means that it has to include three or four, uh, for, you know, pieces for the orchestra to be interesting and to be good and et cetera. And it just happened that that year, uh, which I think was last year or two years ago, there were two or three, three that I remember, um, works that had like that kind of piccolo solo that you've, you, you know, you've played I think it was like Semirami de Rossini and one of these other works that had a famous piccolo solo. And everything went fine in, in rehearsal. Everything went fine. And Patty, who is always very composed and very tranquil and very in control, like 10 minutes before the beginning of the concert, comes to me and he says, Carlos, you won't believe what's happened. And I said, what happened, Patty? And she said, I just looked at there and Wally is sitting in the first row. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so I, I have no idea who Wally is, okay? And so do you know who Wally is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I believe it was Mr. Wally Kujala who was like God of Piccolo yes. or is God of Piccolo. Yes. Uh, how many years Piccolo player for Chicago Symphony? I don't know, 30, 40 47, years. 47, I think, 47. Uh, 47 years. So Patty comes to me and, and she says, he is in the first row. This is happening in, uh, in the cathedral in, in New Orleans where the first row is actually like 
literally, you know, touching distance to, to the players. And, and there he is, and there she is, and she was telling me that that was like one of the most scary things. And that's within uh, a lo long and esteemed career as a, as a flute player and as a piccolo player. So to kind of add to your very nice story, one thing about um, performing never goes away, which is this idea that no matter how many times you've played a piece, no matter how well you think you know it, you have to know it better than better. And you have to keep it better than ready. And there is one aspect which you know better than anyone, which is the mental aspect. If you start a concert thinking, I'm not sure I got this ready. I'm not sure I can do it. Maybe I can, maybe I can't. Then you're either not going to play it right or most importantly for me is you will not enjoy it. Right. And actually what I said to Patty is, Patty, you're just going to hit a home run. And she did, and it was fine. And after the concert, I met Mr. Kujala, and he was very complimentary of Patty. But, you know, I've been doing this much less time than you, but it's a, you know, between 25 and 30 years. And I learn every single day from musicians like you, from musicians like Patty, things that as conductors, Raul and I, and, and Michael, who is s somewhere near you, I imagine, we learn little things from performances and from pieces that that you only learn on the process and i'm i'm very often uh and and in in the uh uh on the other side of the audition on the nice side meaning on the one that's that's not performing uh which which is the 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 jury And there is always a moment when we are, at least uh, in some auditions, when we are giving, given the uh, resumes of the finalists. You know, that some, some orchestras allow that, some don't. But in, in my case, I've had this situation where three out of three people who are in that final have your name on their resume. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you know how many flutists uh, I've worked with that that um, have been your students. So whatever was the reason for you to make that decision, which you just explained to us, it's worked wonderfully because you've produced amazing, amazing individuals, amazing students. And your track record is something absolutely, absolutely incredible. Because I can guarantee you that when you started at Rice, Rice was not necessarily what it is today, right? I mean, it, it, it's today, it's, it's one of the meccas if you want to study music. But when, when you started, you, you kind of take, took a leap of faith uh, of saying, okay, I'm going from, from Boston, which is perceived as one of the capitals of world music to um, Houston which also is a wonderful city for 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 music but to
to take that leap from Boston Symphony to Rice must have taken um, um, quite a lot of courage and vision. And I just want to say that both have worked because Rice is a wonderful institution and your track record is, is wonderful. Thank you so much. I should add that the short intermediate step between Boston and Houston was Ann Arbor. And it was only for four years. But it was clear to me that full-time academic teaching would be my calling after that, that period of time in Ann Arbor. Because I could see the difference that that my colleagues were making in so many lives. I had always loved teaching. And then when Larry Ratcliffe invited me to come down to, to Rice to see the Shepherd School of Music, and when I observed his work with the, the orchestra there, I saw that this was a, another opportunity for growth. It's, that's when I came to meet you because you were working with the Houston Symphony at that time and we ended up doing some chamber music together. I remember mm-hmm. a, a Pierrot Lunaire that was, that was really, really fine. So it's incredible to consider our, our trajectories as musicians and our growth just through sometimes chance encounters one never knows what one new acquaintance might lead to in, in years to come. That's what makes being in the music world such an extraordinary gift. And Leon, how are you so good? I mean, <laughs> you're such a tremendously successful teacher. How do you do it? I think every teacher has their own modus operandi. Mine is not formulaic. Some of my colleagues have a certain regimen that they they prescribe for every student. I take a more open-minded approach and I let the student lead me in a certain sense. I try to figure out what would work best for their style of learning because one particular way of teaching won't necessarily be the best for every single individual. And at Rice, at the Shepherd School of Music, we have very small studios, usually eight wind players. And in that group of eight, you can have a very wide range of personalities and also of previous educational experiences. So I start out by a questionnaire and I ask them what kinds of things they would be most interested in working on in our studio classes, just to engender a kind of sense of collegiality and collaboration. And I then, when I first start working with them, ask them what they feel are their strengths, and then what they felt uh, in their previous educational years they had not really totally understood or how they felt they they could improve and it's it's almost it's almost like taking a a formula from Stephen Covey's the seven habits of highly successful people where you you involve everyone if you're the CEO of Marriott hotels you involve the cleaning staff at the hotel you involve everyone the middle managers 
to try to increase a sense of we are all in this together. And we are. We all love music. We all want to continually grow and improve. And that means that there has to be understanding on both sides of the best way to proceed. Whether it's rehearsal technique, of which Carlos Miguel is a master, he senses immediately when a little bit of levity is needed, or when he has to get serious, or choose a certain person to demonstrate something, that's a real gift. And I think that that is the mark of fine teaching, when you're able to sense what people need and at what time they need a certain element in their education. Whenever people approach me with the question of can, can I uh, look at a piece with you or something like that, I always approach that moment as a colleague opportunity to talk about a piece. I think I'm very insecure of teaching what I do because I still consider and knowing myself maybe will always consider myself uh, uh, maybe incapable of teaching or maybe incapable of 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 uh i, I don't know i get I, you know you know that as conductors raul we are insecure by nature and that uh, there there is something there as saying well uh, what if what i am teaching this person is exactly the wrong way to approach so i know how to talk about a piece about my experience with a piece about how i conduct a certain bar how i think about a certain piece but never uh teaching for example lately uh, right before this uh, this thing uh started about a month before a uh, colleague young colleague who was going to conduct for the first time uh Das Lied von der Erde, imagine that, the Song of the Earth of Mahler, one of the most sublime and hardest pieces in the repertoire to conduct, especially the last movement. And this colleague of mine, she, you know, without knowing each other, she was asking me about the last movement and about how to conduct the last movement. And so, I, you know, we had a very productive back and forth conversation, uh, not in person, about this last movement and it ended up being um, me just recollecting so so many experiences especially about that last movement which is, is 30 minutes long and impossible to conduct as Bruno Walter told Mahler himself actually Bruno Walter asked him and Mahler responded says asked him how do you conduct this movement? And Mahler said, I have no clue. Uh, because there's <laughs> moments where you're, you're supposed to conduct one to a bar, and some people have to subdivide it in seven, sometimes in four, sometimes in three, and sometimes in two. So it is the ultimate moment where, as a, as a conductor, if you try to do too much, you're always getting in the way. So the way I approach, let's say, teaching is sharing experiences and for me if i can make those people not go through the steps that i went through in order to learn which is the screwing up steps because i learned by doing things wrong okay so i think that 
from the the great difference between some between a conductor and an instrumentalist is that you cannot practice as a conductor until you have the real thing in the, in front of you. Uh, a, a, a flutist can practice in the bathroom. You can record yourself. You can you you can play for your friends. They can tell you. But as a conductor, you need the group of people right there in the middle. In the in the and maybe if for you, Raúl, this works. Maybe for me this works, and for other people this works. Who knows? So that's why I hesitate because for me something has worked by trial and error, and I cannot teach that to anyone. I, I'm I'm a firm believer that there is a technique, but I'm a, also a firm observator that that technique is highly individual. I, I I'm sure that all those great names that. Leon has worked with, had their own quirky, strange, and unique ways of doing things. And I can guarantee you that eight out of 10 did not learn them in a conservatory. They learned them in, you know, in life. And by saying, okay, the orchestra is not together. There's something I'm doing, which is wrong. And then the next time you do something a little bit different, and then it maybe it works. So for me, teaching in conducting has to do with the analysis of the piece, with the form of the piece, with what the piece means, with what that, more than X, Y, or Z. So it's an example. There's a piece, Mexican piece that we do a lot, which is called Sense Maya by Revueltas. And that has a, you know, seven, eight bars all the, all around, which is you know, by now it's 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 easy, so no no problem. But then then they got some bars in the middle, and if you're out there and don't understand what I'm saying, feel fine. I I don't even understand what I'm saying. But <laughs> there are some eleven eleven sixteen bars, eleven eight and a half bars, which even for the most trained professional musicians mean nothing. <laughs> Okay, now these 11, 16 bars, uh, some people conduct them in three, some people wiggle their hands, some people move their hips, but I had the privilege of once in my life seeing Eduardo Mata conduct uh, Sense Maya with Cleveland Orchestra in Salanesa, and what I saw that he did for those 11, 16 bars is just he stopped his hand in the bottom and then he conducted the next bar, which for technically speaking is, is called conducting one. Well, guess what? Since then, I conduct those bars in one and it's worked everywhere, meaning I do nothing, okay? So <laughs> if I see a conductor who does a bar of that bar in three and it works for them, I just let it go like that. That's fine. I mean, it, if it, it works for me in one and I can tell that person it'll work in one, but for another person, it can work in three. But I learned it by watching a, a great Mexican conductor who sadly passed away little after that experience. Uh, so I think that teaching conducting is a weird thing because you, you have to teach the person in action and, Rather than saying, this is how you do it, 
I think you have to judge that person after they've done it with a group. And very often, I have to be very honest to you, I learn from them more than they learn from me. Because somebody may do something which says, oh, uh, she, she did right what I've always done wrong. Let me see how she did it. So it becomes more about back and forth than teaching. I'm sure that there will be a point in my life and I, 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 I'm, I'm, not, I'm not announcing anything at, at which I won't mind teaching because the more experience I have, the more I feel capable of sharing. But there's still something in me that says I'm still more of a student than I'm a teacher. Uh, and that part psychological is, is psychologically is is very very important may i simply say that i think we are all students throughout our lifetime and that i feel that i'm still <laughs> learning how to teach more effectively and it's always a challenge and i feel that i'm still growing and learning i hope speaking of teaching what are some big things that you have sort of held on to from your teachers to this day? That's a lovely question because there's nothing I like more than to give credit where credit is due and we all are the product of our teachers and I must say that my very first teacher when I was growing up in Ithaca, New York was the flute professor at Ithaca College. His name is David Berman. He's 92. We are still in touch. We are putting out through Presser, an edition of the viola duets by W.F. Bach for two flutes. He had arranged them himself, and I was able to interest Presser in them. And he was a, a teacher who taught me the foundational aspects of music and made me sing in lessons, which was so embarrassing to a 12 and 13 year old. <laughs> but he was so, so fabulous, still is an incredible colleague musically. We had great discussions in putting together our edition of Wilhelm Friedemann Bach duos. And a next uh, strong influence came right after David Berman, my four years at the Eastman School of Music with Joseph Mariano, who had studied with, with William Kincaid of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And Kincaid had been a student of Georges Barrère, who had come from Paris, where uh, Barrère had studied with Paul Toffanel. Are you beginning to understand the continuum, the continuum in flute playing? So Mariano was an artist who spoke in metaphor. Once he said to me in a lesson, your tone should be like the dark side of the moon. Excuse me, <laughs> but that, that prompted thought in another way. Then I went to Paris, and in Paris I had the great good fortune of working with Michel de Bost, who was the principal flutist of the Orchestra of Paris, L'Orchestre de Paris, Previous to that, in the summer of my sophomore year, I had studied with Jean-Pierre Rampal in Nice at his summer master classes, and that did it. I knew I had to go back to France. So while I was in France on a Fulbright, I worked not only with de Bost, but also with Jean-Pierre Rampal. I was pianist for his master classes, both at the conservatory sometimes and also in Nice. And then 
I worked for one year with Gaston Crunel, who had been the uh, professor at the conservatory before Ram Paul took over. I also encountered Marcel Moise. All of these teachers, all of them, had an influence on me in very different ways. And when you think about our educations, we have to synthesize what comes to us. We are privileged to encounter so many different ways of thinking about music or playing the instrument, visualizing, and I feel very fortunate to have had such remarkable mentors in my own education. I have to say that I started doing this later than, than some of my uh, colleagues, especially some of the ones who are having uh, tremendous success now, and that there were some uh, gentlemen. Um, it, it, was still the, it was still the time when one spoke about conductors in male terms. And one of the things I'm very happy today is that we are getting away from that, by the way. That's just a small side. But I, I have to say that that the person from whom I learned uh, many, many things uh, is uh, George Mester. And Leon, I'm sure that you worked with George as far as incredible score preparation, incredible uh, honesty. Uh, you know, I also learned things of how uh, I can do things differently. Um, and then from Enrique Dimec, who's still very active, I learned something else. Uh, but, you know, the, the, when you said the dark side of the moon kind of comment, that comes in my mind from uh, Charles Bruck, who was my teacher for one summer, the same summer he, he, he passed away in Maine, uh, because he would say things about music which were exactly what young people do not think about, but that as time comes, you start understanding how deep they are. So the more I do what I do, the more I understand Maestro Bruck, who studied directly with Piamonte, because yes, it is about the notes, and yes, it is about the accuracy, and yes, it is about all these things, but it is finally about portraying that which we believe, hopefully rightly so, that the composer wanted. You cannot play the flute solo from La Primidie d'Enfone without having in, in your mind what it is about that piece, that dance piece, that makes it so bewitching, so sensual, so mysterious, so poetic. If you don't have an idea in your mind, it's going to be notes, very well played, and maybe without a breath, and maybe with a breath, and maybe with this, and maybe with that. But I have to say that when I hear in an audition, 20 flutists play Daphnis, or 20 flutists play Après-midi d'Enfone, I know exactly when that person is trying to say something that is deeply personal versus when that person is doing very, 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 very well what they've been taught. And I think it's finally about that. And, you know, your, your, your 
most of the time, the rest of the committee and the audition are highly trained, highly technical and highly accomplished wind players who are marking little things in papers. And uh, I don't mark anything. What they're marking is, uh, it was flat here, it was a little bit fast here, they, they missed a beat. Um, and what I'm trying to picture is, is this person able to inspire a whole orchestra with a solo? And then I think you fix the other things in rehearsal, in life. So yes, Leon, for me, it is about the dark side of the moon rather than about the notes because the dark side of the moon is finally the only real thing that we have. <laughs> here, here, bravo, <laughs> bravo. <laughs> I couldn't agree more because the individual voice of any musician needs to be heard and the less analytical and the more intuitive and heartful the music making can be. Of course, taking a technological solidity for granted, that must be there. But I agree totally with Carlos Miguel that you will immediately hear in listening to a group of musicians in an audition who really has thought about the dark side of the moon. Well, these things always seem too short for the amount of things that we can talk about, but I want to thank Leon Baisi, uh, who is not only one of the best flutist teachers, but one of the closest friends uh, that, that I've had in these last years. So I want to thank you, uh, Leon, for sharing with us some of your experiences. I'm Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I am Raul Gomez. See you guys next time. Soundpost is a production of the Orchestra of the Americas Group with additional support provided by MYS Portland. Visit theoagroup.org backslash soundpost to learn more.